Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. And that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. So it's my pleasure to welcome to the GWA today, Professor Robert Green. Um, Robert, how are you? I'm great, thank you. And you're a man with a, a reasonably large hat collection. Um, you are a professor of uh, medicine at Harvard Medical School, specializing in genetics. You're at the Broad Institute. Um, you're director of the Preventive Genomics Clinic at Brigham Women's Hospital, um, which I think I'm right in saying is the second largest teaching hospital of the Harvard Medical School. Is that right? It is, yeah. Um, and also involved with um, the legendary Atul Gawande at the Ariadne Lab. That's right. Tell us a little bit about how you got into this field. I guess like no one is born being a professor of medicine at Harvard. How did you get the bug? Thanks, Chris, and thanks for having me. Uh, I trained as a neurologist, and I was interested in Alzheimer's disease. Gradually became aware that Alzheimer's disease was more genetic than had been previously suspected. Went back to school to learn epidemiology and some statistics because my grants weren't getting funded. Started getting some grants funded, including uh, a grant around uh, returning risk information, genetic risk information to families for Alzheimer's disease, and realized there was this whole world of genetics out there that was going to explode and was so fascinating and so incredible. And I uh, did a crazy thing at that point. I was a full professor of neurology, went back and did a second residency in medical genetics and had to claw my way back up the academic ladder from uh, resident to lecturer to uh, all the way back up to full professor again. So um, I have the zeal of the recently converted to genetics, but I absolutely love it. That is brilliant. And um my wife tells me that I make far too many film references in this podcast, but here goes, here's another one. I mean, it reminds me of in Apocalypse Now when Kurtz is like a full colonel or something, and then he goes back to special forces training, and it's like he's 39, all of the other people are 19, and he kind of re-enters re the army. I love it. Exactly. But that, that takes dedication and a clear-minded focus. That is great. And so if we fast forward to today, you have published over 300 scientific papers. You've won lots of different prizes. And you run this lab around genomes to people. Tell us a little bit about that. What does genomes to people uh, do? Yeah, our laboratory is uh, technically implementation science, which means we are interested in that last mile problem. You've got all this powerful technology. You've got all these databases. You've got all curation scientists. You've got laboratories around the world getting better and better at both diagnosis and risk stratification using genomics. Uh, how do you actually get it to the human being, to the human being's provider? And uh, how do you measure the, the risks the, the, or harms uh, that can accrue? How do you measure the, the benefits? 
And how do you measure the costs? Our mantra has been what's the medical, behavioral, and economic outcomes that are necessary to understand to make genomics part of everybody's life and every, everybody's health. We're definitely uh, very aligned on that, I think, in terms of mission. I think in Genomics England, we're lucky in the sense of in the UK, we have this partnership with the NHS. If we can get something into the NHS through Sue Hill and her team and the, the regional genomics laboratory hubs and so on, you know, it's in there. How in the US context with a much more fragmented healthcare system with the insurers and different providers and so on, what's the kind of path to impact for the work that you're doing? Well, I agree. It's much more rational in the UK with a, with a system where you can make decisions at a central level. Uh, even our newborn screening system, as you know, although there is um, cultivation of the recommended list at a central level, the implementation occurs at each of the state levels, the state laboratories, state legislatures, uh, state public health programs. So uh, that plus our uh, crazy system of health insurance means that we are extremely fragmented and bringing something like genomics to bear on the health system in the United States, uh, I think we have to get much more creative. We have, to, we have to use what we're strong with. And I think what we're strong with is forming new companies, creating new uh, technological solutions. Uh, and so I had the privilege five years ago of co-founding, for example, a telemedicine genetics company called Genomedical. And this is a solution to the problem that everybody says there's not enough genetics professionals, there's not enough providers who understand genetics. Well, we've created a 50-state solution where you can get a genetics appointment in 48 hours. My wife, who works in Mass General Brigham, takes four months to get a genetics consultation. You can go to Genomedical in the United States and get one in 48 hours. So, you know, we're going to have to be acknowledge our weaknesses and work around them. I'm working with another company, Genomic Life now, that's providing low-cost genomic services as a kind of insurance or benefits plan to employers. So you can, you can pay into a small amount, and then when you need genomics to sequence the tumor that you get when you develop cancer or something, uh, it's right there for you in, in, in an immediate and accessible way. So um, I believe in the public good. I wish we had a, a country where there was an ability to efficiently explore that at a national level. But since that's not what we have, I think we've got to find clever ways to implement genomics, uh, lest we, we simply don't bring it at all to our citizenry. Is there a pragmatist, which I, I admire? <laughs> yeah, um, that is super. So you, you mentioned within... Um, Genus to people, you've got a few programs running. I'd love to double click on the one you just mentioned around um, newborn sequencing. Just give us a flavor of some of the other um, work that you're doing as well before we dive into that one. Sure. I've been fascinated uh, because of my public health and genetics background. I've been fascinated by when will it be appropriate to consider essentially screening people with genomics. And as you know, this has been a, a hot topic and somewhat controversial topic. We were the first to do a randomized trial of whole genome sequencing in healthy adults. Healthy adults, they had no medical problems. And that we called the MedSeq project. And we discovered that a crazy number, like 20% of these healthy adults 
it was only a couple hundred people that we could enroll, were carrying a monogenic or biallelic rare disease uh, mutation or mutations. And of course, not all of them were demonstrating, in fact, most of them were not demonstrating the condition itself. They were therefore at risk for the condition. And we came to see that um, we really have to think about screening fundamentally differently than we think about diagnostic testing. So in diagnostic testing, you've got a patient who's affected in front of you and you're looking to the molecular testing to create a diagnosis. That's, that's an absolutely first and important use of genomics. But in screening, you're using genomic technologies to simply ask, is this person in a higher risk profile? And we do that all the time in medicine. If someone is overweight, if someone is complaining of chest pain, if someone has a high potassium, if someone has a fever, we don't diagnose from that first item. We say, oh my goodness, that, that's leading us down a path where we're going to look more closely. If you want to get technical, it's a kind of Bayesian decision process where we say, okay, genetic mutation, yes, no. Okay, among those with genetic mutation, yes. Do we have a family history? Yes, no. Among those, do we have any early symptoms, which we previously dismissed, but we now see in a different light? And Chris, when we did this, we found remarkable things. We found people who had completely dismissed the white spots in the back of their eyes, the hearing partial hearing loss that had come on them early, the abnormal laboratories that they had designated. And this was explained by the previously unanticipated genetic mutation which they had received. And we can talk about more examples among babies, but the lesson I learned there was that you can use genomics to both predict conditions that you ought to surveil, but surprisingly, you actually find out in about a quarter of these ostensibly healthy people that there's something already going on that genetics leads you to discover. And that was a complete surprise. The kind of stumble upon model, right? That you don't know what you're going to see until you have a look. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, we have a model in medicine for the most part where you have to complain about something in order to get the attention of the clinician. Uh, in a few instances, we have a model where you are screened for something like blood pressure or cholesterol, and then you get attention. And so it's not a huge leap of the imagination to imagine that you can screen your DNA uh, and ultimately multiomics, and that this does not offer a full diagnosis. It offers a pathway to greater attention. And then when you pay greater attention, you discover more. Now, the the opposite of that, of as you've explored with others on, on the program, is that these are uh, rare diseases, and you may find many more people at risk than ultimately get the disease, the, the penetrance problem. You could imagine uh, doing harm by following up on all those people. You could imagine uh, premature treatments. You could imagine spending a lot of extra money. Um, and, and the UK has been really, really thoughtful uh, about public health screening in a way that many, many other countries and companies have not. So we have a lot of lessons to learn from the UK, but um, screening per se is not a new idea. And there's no reason why genomic screening can't be designed to be thoughtful, efficient, and cost-effective. 
It's a great point. And I think I would add one, one thing to your list as well, which is that it can be in concert with existing screening, right? So for cardiovascular risk, you know, you, you can have the family history, blood pressure, and a risk score from a polygenic risk score um, or, you know, other, um, other elements. It doesn't necessarily need to be standalone, completely separate, completely new thing. It's just, it becomes another risk factor in, you know, your, your Bayesian calculation that you were walking through. That's right. And, and interestingly, by the way, there's a fascinating textbook by Muir Gray, Anne Mackey, and Angela Raffel in your country that has become my Bible as I think about this. I mean, these, these, this is brilliant text. And from the first edition to the second edition, there was a line in the first edition that basically said genomic screening should never be done. And they modified that line in the second edition, which I was happy to see. And, uh, and then, um, They've been involved in some of the conversations that we're going to get to about about newborn screening as well in the in the public forum. So I, I think on all our part, including the most rigorous thinkers about population screening, uh, which are those folks I named, we're all evolving in this space it, with goodwill and with the best intentions. We're all evolving our positions in this space. Yeah, absolutely, and. And ultimately, I guess that's what science is, right? We have to <laughs> we have to learn, we have to establish some hypotheses, see if they work or not, and uh, you know refine our thinking. Let's dive into the work that you've been doing around um, newborn sequencing with uh, with uh, BabySeq. Tell us a bit about the the program and what you're hoping to uh, achieve with it. Sure thing. So all of this work I mentioned with adults, uh, with the military, with epidemiologic studies, with returning research in large scale research studies. All that led to the questions of acceptability of essentially screening in one form or another and giving people back in one form or another unanticipated genomic results. I like, I like the term unanticipated results, although, as you know, you hear lots of terms and hear secondary results, incidental findings, but I like to lump them under unanticipated results. And uh, this, of course, leads to back to a concept that's been talked about almost relentlessly for 20 years, which is whether and when we should consider uh, looking at genomic data and creating genomic information to be shared with the parents of newborn babies. Uh, it's a powerful narrative because having a newborn baby is when you want to start thinking about the whole arc of health for that entire baby's life. Parents are obviously focused in on this in, a, in an appropriate and sometimes inappropriate way. And there's just this, there's the negative sense of Gattaca. Do you somehow create a controlling element in this pe person's health? But there's the positive impact that you would have an entire lifetime to reap the benefits of any risk information that you could accrue, including that critical first few years of life. So we were one of the first to um, become funded for a study we called the Baby Seek Project which as it sounds was uh, an effort to sequence healthy newborn babies and ask what again were the medical, behavioral and economic outcomes. And we completed the first phase of the BabySeq project last year. And again, even with a, a, a reduced list of genes, only about a thousand genes, uh, we found that 11% of these babies were carrying again, monogenic uh, dominant or biallelic risk factors. And again, about a quarter of those 
actually, when we circled back, had some evidence of the condition in question. Here, here's an example. We found a baby with an elastin mutation. That baby um, was perfectly healthy, healthy heart sounds, ruddy cheeks. But based on this mutation, we looked at the echocardiogram, and indeed, this baby's aorta was abnormally narrowed. Now, there's nothing to be done. In that sense, it's not actionable. But if that baby grows up and in the next few years starts to have a few fainting spells on the playground, we're going to see that symptomatology through a completely different prism. And we're also going to be able to cascade test within that family and see if anybody else who's actually experiencing trouble walking upstairs or shortness of breath uh, might be carrying the same mutation. So you've suddenly got a new prism through which you can think about all sorts of important symptomatology that might emerge in this family. And to me, that's critically actionable. It's not a pill. It's not an x-ray. It's not a surgery. But Chris, the real thing that's changed the equation is the pipeline of gene-targeted therapies for individual rare diseases that is coming online throughout the world. And pharma and the community of early interveners is realizing that some of these conditions can prevent the deterioration of the baby, but only if you treat them early. So suddenly we have a we have a wild card in here that's changing the risk-benefit equation for all babies in order to detect these rare cases that can be saved with bone marrow transplantation or gene-targeted therapy or another, another treatment. And give us a couple of examples of that, like what kind of, what kind of conditions and why is it so important to get in there early? Is it just that there are fewer cells because <laughs> it's a smaller organism and therefore you can change those cells more easily? Or like what's, what's going on with um, those early interventions? It's really um, different for different conditions and different interventions. But let me give you just, I'll just rattle off four examples that, that I've been using when I talk about this. So there's a super rare disease called uh, molybdenum cofactor deficiency which can give you intractable seizures. And there are medications now available that can stop those seizures and prolong the life of the baby. So that's a, that's a medication solution. There's uh, something called ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency, or OTC, which usually gets picked up in infancy, but sometimes doesn't. And you get teenagers or even young adults who, when they eat too much protein, can get a deadly hyperaminemic crisis. And you can redress that simply by a, knowing it's there and redressing uh, the diet. There's um, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Most people have heard of that. There are new exon skipping therapies uh, for subtypes of Duchenne's muscular atrophy, which can absolutely improve muscle mass and prolong life. And then there's you know more drastic treatments like um, for metachromatic leukodystrophy, you can do stem cell transplants, which can prevent uh, neuroregression, prolong the life and the functionality of, of a child. So you can see that it, it's the, the treatments are very varied. The interventions are very varied. What it means to be actionable is varied. But none of these, none of these four examples are screened for in the traditional heel stick newborn screening that's going on every day in all the developed world. So... In that sense, there's this immediate horizon of 
insight and benefit that I think the work that um, we've done, some of which you've uh, you've been involved in, which is great, has suggested that there are maybe two or three hundred conditions out there where early onset, you know, first few years of life, actionable, as you say, and that the nature of that action might uh, be different in different cases, that flagging that early, treating it early is of benefit to the baby, benefit to the family, right? There's then, I think, a sort of much longer term horizon uh, to this, right? I was listening to uh, a different podcast this morning that was talking about the challenges of implementing pharmacogenomics um, in healthcare. Um, and one of the challenges is actually just if you want to do a pharmacogenomic analysis, it's going to take you a few weeks, it's going to cost some money, um, and actually you want to get prescribing straight away. And the person was talking and saying, you know, well, wouldn't it be nice in a dream world if actually you had the person's uh, genomic genomic information on record already? You could just, you know, boom, do it at the drop of a hat, but that's never going to happen. And it got me thinking, well, is it never going to happen? Or, you know, um, actually, so potentially having for the for the kids who've been through baby seek right there they will have access to that information right that's exactly right and also for indication-based testing screening is very different than indication-based testing it's, it's it, it doesn't go into as much depth you you in fact you deliberately don't want to go into variants of uncertain significance for screening but um when that healthy baby develops hopefully not but develops seizures or asthma or skin rash or visual problems the genome won't always be helpful, obviously, but if you want to query it, it's right there. And pharmacogenomics is another example. You know, there are systems like the Sanford system in South Dakota, St. Jude's Hospital, where they have actually put, uh, they have they have done some sort of array testing for their entire population or a big part of their population. They've created point of care pop-up decision support, and that, that's exactly how they're implementing pharmacogenomics. So, so your your intuition about how it has to happen is exactly right, but but the population has to have already been tested for that to work. And how it, with the BabySeq work, how are you thinking about some of those other life course benefits? I mean, I've had conversations where people have talked about obesity and mental health in kind of teens and twenties, into kind of cardiovascular and cancer risk in the sort of 40s and 50s into things like neurodegenerative disease in, in later life and so on. So you can almost see this kind of 80 to 100 year benefit rolling out the back, but that's less clear cut in the science today, I think, than the, you know, this first horizon of like immediate utility for, for a baby um, and their family. How, how should we be thinking about that longer term horizon? Well, it's almost like a... Um you know, an exponential curve, the farther away you get from immediate benefit at near birth, the more controversial the information becomes. And and that's fair because um, when we screen, we want to make sure that there's, you know, a genuine need for the information in order to, to save lives. And you can't easily get that information a different way. So for example, Familial hypercholesterolemia, which I know you've, you've thought about and talked about before, is recognized in less than 2% of, of the mutation carriers across the entire population. When we did this in the Mass General Brigham Biobank, we found scores of people who were carrying mutations, and uh, only um, one or two of them had, um, had ever been recognized as mutation carriers. And there's still, a, I think it's valuable, by the way, but there are still lipidologists who argue, well, I don't need that mutation because I can directly measure their cholesterol. 
and I don't need a, a tendency toward obesity because I can put you on the scale. So um, you get into much more controversy about this. And when you get into polygenic risk scores, you're getting into probabilities and misunderstanding of these probabilities. Um, and when you get into completely untreatable conditions, then sometimes you get into even more controversy. But look, uh, there's a wide variety of choices that people want in terms of information. That's been my conclusion. And I think we should honor those choices. So if a mother or a father of a newborn doesn't want any information, that's their right. If they only want things that can be absolutely treated in the first five years of life, great, let's give them that. If they want information, we just published a paper on the cost effectiveness of uh, screening, screening for pediatric cancers throughout at, all the way through adolescence. And it's approaching cost effectiveness, just that little bit of the, of the unit. Maybe they want that for a little longer. So I think um, we have to acknowledge that people are different and we have to give them different choices uh, according to their comfort level. And never, and we have to be, we have to be both incredibly transparent and incredibly honest about the pros and cons of each unit of information that we offer people. And that's, that's hard in both our systems. It's hard in the UK system because the default is show me the evidence before you roll this out to the population. And sometimes that bar is very high, particularly for extremely rare diseases. In the United States, the threshold's a little bit different. The threshold is if I can market this to you, um, then I can sell it to you. And we have to guard against over-enthusiasm, um, over over-marketing, oversimplification that comes because of the commercial pressures in the United States. Yeah. Um, and I love the framing you gave earlier about thinking through the medical benefits, the economic benefits, or the, or the medical implications, the economic implications, and the behavioral uh, implications. As I, I don't know if you've looked into any of this kind of longer life course as a health system. How is there? A, can you demonstrate an economic benefit of you know not having to do multiple genetic tests or being able to more effectively screen or anything. Have, have you and the team thought about any of that longer term picture? Yeah, we've been collaborating with uh, colleagues, Ann Wu and Kurt Christensen, on uh, modeling uh, long-term benefits uh, of discovering things in childhood. And uh, they've been taking, uh, for example, the pediatric cancers or pediatric cardiomyopathies or something else, and trying to model out what do you save? What do you spend along the way? And most of these models that they've done and others have done actually are starting to approach the thresholds for acceptable cost effectiveness, especially if you anticipate that sequencing and interpretation continues to come down. So it's really hard to reassure the critics, um, but even if you do, it takes years to uh, create that value. And as you know, in the United States, the dominant model for health insurance is actually um, something which churns every 18 to 24 months for most people. So it's very hard to convince the payers that they should invest in technologies and processes that may 
create cost-effective benefit over a decade or two decades or three decades. Where the benefit comes to someone else, right? Or to another company, right? Again, a, a great advantage of a national health service is that you will, you must think in terms of those long-term benefits. So I, again, I think UK, Australia, other centralized health services have a great advantage in rolling out. Um, and I'm jealous of, of the perspective. I guess the only downside is you have to deal with um, bureaucracies and, vo and, and often conservative voices who uh, can slow things down. Well, we're, um, we're right in the middle of a, a challenging spending review right now. Um, you know, thanks to COVID, the UK has just run up the largest uh, national credit card bill since World War II. But uh, we're we're making the we're making the pitch for uh, for this this program, um, and uh, we'll continue to uh, draw on the insights that you've generated through BabySeek and other stuff as well. So thank you. <laughs> you're you're giving us useful uh, grist to the mill um, as we as we make the case for this. My pleasure. And and this is this is something we've just started uh, in conjunction with some of the leadership of Global Alliance for Genomic Health. We've just started an international newborn sequencing consortium where we hope to collect the experiences and um, opinions and evidence, maybe harmonize some of the outcomes of all these programs that are springing up in different places with different styles and different foci around the world. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. We've just hired an executive director and um, we'll be working with folks from Genomics England uh, that um, are interested in working together, putting on an international conference and, and things like that. And any of your listeners who are interested, uh, who I haven't met yet, who are interested in uh, sequencing newborns uh, from any angle, I would really encourage to contact me and uh, I would love to tell them more. Fantastic. Well, I'm really excited about this. I think the vision that you lay out of a system which is anchored on actionability, being able to do stuff for humans, um, which is scalable, which is based on individual choice. Um, it's an incredibly liberating vision of the future, right? And I think it's kind of almost the utopian vision to balance the dystopian vision of like the Gattaca or whatever, right? Let's, let's keep steering in that direction. Um, really excited. And Robert, thanks for your collaboration. And we're really excited to see where this, uh, this whole area goes. My pleasure, Chris. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. I'd appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word. <laughs>